Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. We are in the middle of a three-part series. We call it the Solstice Stories. These are terrific stories about Christmas back in the late 1950s. And uh, I'm sure those of you who might have been around at that time will will remember some of the things we're talking about, and I'm sure it'll bring back some stories of your own. And that's exactly what a good story should do. So without any further ado, here's Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. This is Solstice Story Part 2. Now, every year, sometime before Christmas, Walt would make up a great lump of bread dough. He would stretch it and pound it amid puffs of white flour on the kitchen table. He would set it up overnight in its tin on the radiator. In the morning, he would pound it again and beat it up again and pull at it again. And this he did until Christmas morning, when he would stretch out a small bit of it, toss it into a frying pan, and sizzle it with fat. The outcome was something that he called bolivers. And we would eat this buttered, dripping bolivar with molasses or maple syrup. A single bolivar settled into your stomach like a sack of warm sand. It would weigh you down and often induce you to mid-morning naps, usually directly after the unwrapping of presents. Why we ate these miserable things had nothing to do with taste and everything to do with tradition. It was a nod to my grandmother's thrifty culinary delights that kept the Stead clan going through the Depression. This was appropriate. Bolivers were really depressing. Walt was in the kitchen a few days before Christmas, pounding away at his big ball of bread dough. I sat there watching him while Tessie tore the stovetop apart and tossed it into a sink full of hot sudsy water. It was an old gas stove with a faulty pilot that overheated the jet pipes. She grabbed one too close to the end and recoiled. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! And after shoving her burnt fingers into a bar of butter, she settled into a chair and focused on me. I could see by the look in her face that an inquiry was about to set in. In a tender voice one reserved for engaging children in something that parents don't do themselves, she asked me if I wanted to see Santa down at Ramsey Circle Shopping Center. I shrugged. Tessie looked at Walt, who continued beating up his bread dough, sending little cloudy puffs of flour over the table. She looked back at me. Do you have a problem with Santa this year? Well, um, how does this old guy with flying reindeer manage to visit every house? She was stunned. She shook her head. Still clutching her burnt finger, she said, It's magic. Uh, So magic is real? Well, of course. Of course it is. I mean, you believe in angels, don't you? Before I could answer, Walt, still pounding away at the bread dough, said, You believe your great-grandma Eliza lives upstairs in the wall between your room and the next, don't you? Tessie turned to him. Walt, don't tell him that. I said, and and Grandpa, he sleeps in the closet when he's not sleeping in the toy box, right? Walt nodded. Yep. And poor little Betty, your aunt that passed away long before you came along. She was still a little bugger then. Well, she sleigh rides down First Street along the evening after the very first snow every year. You can see the runner tracks in the snow. Tessie jumped up. Well, the whole damn town is just full of ghosts, isn't it? He looked at her, a little hurt. Well, it's just magic is all. But Tessie didn't care for ghost talk, so as Walt started in again about Grandma Eliza floating through the house, she stormed out of the kitchen. There was a pounding on the back porch. The door swung open, and Ricky Cramshaw came in, full of excitement. He pulled off his coat and took out a small box made from twigs. 
It was tied together with long bits of thread, and it dangled loosely from his hands. He opened it up. It had a lid, and beneath the lid were three tiny pine cones nestled in green spruce needles. Tessie came back into the room and returned to her sink full of stove parts. She looked over her shoulder, and she saw Ricky holding the box up. She said, "'What's that for?' Well, Graham said uh, we we got to make something out of stuff we find. So this Christmas story of hers is what we're going to be in with our made-up stuff. She looked at me. She shrugged it off. And then she suggested, perhaps, I should make a manger. What? Something mangy? No, no, she said. A manger. Like the one that they had the little baby Jesus in. She took us into the next room and she pointed to the Bethlehem set on the dining room bureau. We looked, and sure enough, the little baby was lying in a manger, which is sort of like a crib, and, well, actually, the manger was the best-looking piece in the whole set. The rest of the little plastered Bethlehem people, they'd seen better years. Ricky and I used to ride them around in my electric trains. They got kind of beat up. The kings and the camels, they got run over a bunch of times. They had chips, they had broken noses, missing ears. Tessie looked sadly at her worn little figures, and then she told us to get the hell out of the house. Cindy Maloney was just streaming down First Street on her bike. She skidded to a stop and hopped off, all smiles and cherry-cheeked. Ricky started to tell her about his Graham's Christmas story adventure, and almost immediately she asked if she could come. And of course, Ricky, whose credo is the more the merrier, he said yes, but then charged up the street to ask Grandma Cramshaw. Cindy then turned to me, and she announced that this year she and I were going to exchange gifts. And before I could voice an opinion about this, she plucked off her glove and revealed a small plastic ring on her ring finger of her left hand. It was blue and had a butterfly on it. She pulled it off and handed it to me. There, that's, that's my ring size, so you can take that with you when you go to buy me a ring. Hey, hey, we're not getting married or something. No, no, this is a friendship ring. Now, now guess what I got you? I don't know. Well, guess. Okay, uh, a rifle? No. Uh, switch tracks for the trains? No. Rubber throw-up? No. It's something you need. I need rubber throw-up, Cindy. No, no, something you really need. Ugh, what, socks? Oh, forget it, forget it. It'll be a surprise. Ricky returned, running all the way. He told Cindy she could come along and that she had to make a thing out of found stuff. And then he told her about Doug's unhappy Santa adventure. This brought up the subject of Santa. So while we walked her bike back up First Street, I asked her if she believed in him. Well, Chucky, it seems like pretty crazy stuff to believe in, right? I mean, a magical old man that rides around with reindeer and slips in and out of folks' places with gifts, and it's pretty wild, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But is it any more wild than believing in angels and the devil and all that stuff? Well, when you put it that way, I guess not. So, she said triumphantly, if you don't believe in one thing, then I guess you don't believe in anything. And you know what happens then? No, what, Cindy? She jumped on her bike and shouted, You don't get much for Christmas. She pedaled off and looked over her shoulder and said, Don't forget about the ring. Ricky turned to me. What ring? Oh, she wants a ring for Christmas. Huh? You getting married? No. Yes, yes, Chucky and Cindy sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. It's a friendship ring, Rick. It's a friendship ring. Yeah, well, you're my friend and you ain't giving me no ring. 
Well, girls are different. Yeah, girls are made of sugar and spice and chewed up old mice. Now at Christmas time, which is just a, a few days after solstice time, Tessie gets into a cleaning frenzy, and she's been in one for a while now. She encourages us all to get out of the house. She scrubs it down in case relatives stop by. That's the idea. Stead's almost never stopped by. We all pretty much live within the same six streets of Hilburn, so we already see enough of each other to begin with. And anyhow, Stead's weren't really the visiting-at-your-house kind of folks. If anything, they were the stroll-over-and-visit-on-the-front-porch sort of folks. Stead's were not big on formal invitations. In fact, I really don't remember Stead's formally inviting other Stead's much anywhere. Uncle Mal said formality was for weddings and funerals. It was different with the Kileys. Kileys indulged in both formal invites and last-minute stop-ups. The Jersey Kileys, which included Serenos, Kohlbergers, Ellings, Kileys, and then even more Kileys, regularly moved about the map through the holidays. Then there were the outliers. They were in Long Island and Boston. They required a more formal, organized invitation. Tessie remained open to the possibility that through the holidays, any number of relatives from her side of the family could descend. Usually, it was either Grandma with Aunt Joan and and Aunt Eileen or the Serenos or Uncle Tom Kiley's family, but there was always the possibility that Kohlbergers and Ellings would show up. Tessie chased us out. She scrubbed down the house. She vacuumed with a vengeance. She cleaned the windows and then covered them all back up with curtains. She went through the dining room closet. She tossed out clothes that had not been worn in the last six months. She even vacuumed the porch screens. And then at supper, she would complain that she had to do all of this by herself. And then she would tell us this was just as well because she was the only one who could do a proper job of it. She would also complain that the worst thing about the holidays was all the damn cleaning for all the damn visits. She'd give you the impression that she hated the whole thing until some family arrived, and then she was in her element. The visits never lasted long enough. She was the one to keep folks hanging on, telling stories, and howling with laughter late into the night. And then when the last guest left, she would turn around to us and say, I thought they would never leave. Walt was very different about visitors. He prepared nothing, except for maybe a few extra cans of beer in the cellar. He was fine with whoever showed up and happy to have them stay for as short or as long as they wanted. He didn't care. They usually entertained him all evening, and only when they got tired of talking did he engage and tell a few stories. Sometimes, before he was ready, Tessie would be impatient, and she would insist he tell some story or something, And he usually didn't take the bait. And then she would announce if he wasn't going to tell it, she was going to tell it. This was sort of a routine of theirs. She would launch into the story and purposely tell it wrong, looking over her shoulder at him. Maybe she would tell it over the top or add some outlandish episode or some characters that weren't even in the story to begin with, just to get him to jump in. He never did. This would annoy her, and she would end up cutting off her rendition, cutting it off short, and suggest that we all now have coffee, which was a signal that the evening was coming to an end. Occasionally, there would be an argument between uncles about something they didn't remember the same way or something they disagreed on. One time, just such an argument broke out between Uncle Joe Serino and Uncle Doc Elling. The nature of the argument was beyond me, but the harsh words were clear. 
I was in the kitchen, so I ran to the living room to get in on this, but Tessie blocked me. She said I should go down to the cellar and mind my own business. Reluctant to miss the action, I went down into the cellar. You see, there had been drinking, and we only had aunts and uncles visiting this time, no cousins, so I was the only witness, and now I was stricken to the cellar. I would not be defeated. Once down there, I heard loud voices coming from above, and I went to the back of the bulkhead, the hatch, to get outside, and I snuck around to the front of the house. It was dark out. I could hide well. I got to the side of the porch, and I heard Walt and Doc and Joe all take the argument out onto the porch. I ducked under the floorboards. And now I heard apologizing. Doc kept saying he didn't mean what he said. And Joe kept saying that harsh words don't go away just so easy. And Walt, well, he said nothing. Doc and Joe started talking at the same time over one another. And pretty soon, I thought I heard crying. After a little while, Doc and Joe were telling each other how sorry they were. And Joe was saying, Christmas time is family time. It is a time to be together. So I walked around the side of the house, figured the argument was done. I looked in the kitchen window, and Tessie was there with aunts Mary and Peg in the kitchen, drinking coffee, smoking. Tessie was telling them something. I snuck down into the cellar, and I went over to Walt's workbench. I pulled out the plastic ring with the butterfly on it, out of my pocket. It's the one that Cindy gave me, so I could buy her one similar but better. And I thought, how was I going to do this? Ricky had said it was a getting married ring, but I told him it was a friendship ring. Now I thought, that's where it begins. First a friendship ring, then a little later on maybe a better friendship ring, then an engagement ring, and then a married ring. Ah! Oh, I looked up as I heard the men walking back in from the porch heading to the kitchen where the women were. It was the holidays, and all those folks up there, they had long been married. And from where I stood, it seemed like the holidays brought out the worst and maybe the best of family. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so true. So true. So yeah. True. Yeah. It really, it's true. I mean, I, you know, I think we all can recall either Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, families get together and. Families argue, you know, and, you know, we, I think everybody's thinking, well, now, you know, we're so divided and everything else. We used to argue back then, too. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We'd have differences well, of opinion, right? Don't forget, don't forget weddings and funerals. Oh, yeah. How, yeah. How that could be. Yes. Crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's the place where you, where the emotions finally get vented because you're, mm -hmm. You know, you're you're not really together during the rest of the year, and things are building up, and you're creating narratives that really don't exist. You know, you're hearing things that people say that they haven't really said. They you just right. think they're saying these things, right. and uh, then you get together for the holidays, and damn it, I'm gonna set Everybody's the record. Ready. Yeah, Everybody's ready. yeah, we're gonna set the record straight. You know, yeah. I uh, all right. Happy Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I know, uh, you know, the, the our, our uncles and aunts were very close, you know, especially on the Kylie side, very close. I think I saw my aunts and uncles on the Sereno side. I I could count the number of times in my young life on one hand. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kylies, they're constantly visiting. You know, as you pointed out, Aunt Joan, Aunt Eileen, and Grandma used to come over for dinner at least once a week. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
you know, we would return the visits, of course. And sometimes uh, my mom would just hop in the car and take me and Mary and Rosie over, you know, at nighttime over to grandma's house and spend some time there and then come back and that kind of thing. It, you know, so there was a lot of, um, a lot of interaction. And Doc, uh, Doc on Saturdays, he would work down at my dad's store, you know, and uh, uh, so they had a, you know, relationship down there. Doc worked for the stock exchange during the week, uh, but he would come down and help my dad out on Saturdays. So they, they, they got very close. And then there was a time where John Kohlberg and my dad were, I think they were just best friends. They would just go to movies together, go out to eat together, you know, just, just pals. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as I've said before, uh, Dad always loved spending time with Walt because Walt listened, and Dad loved to talk. Uh, but I think the the incident you speak of, um, you know, my father was had a little grocery store. That's otherwise, how else could eleven children survive? Sure, right. And uh, so did, it, it was his family's business. His father had a grocery store. His brothers had grocery stores. He had a grocery store. And his was a little grocery store and a sandwich shop, and unfortunately, we were uh, we were robbed, you know, at times, at at gunpoint. I was there once when that happened, mm. and uh, he was uh, compelled to get into the walk-in refrigerator. You know, my father was a butcher by trade, and uh, so we did what as we were told because the guys had guns, you know. Sure. Yeah. So uh, we got into the refrigerator and. And I remember talking to him in there saying, well, when, when, when do we got to get out? And he said, we, we wait a while uh, until we're pretty cold and then we get out. And I said, are you, are you, don't you want to call the police? And, and this is where it really got said. Uh, one of the people that robbed him was somebody that worked for him mm. at one point in time earlier. It really kind of broke his heart. And he said, uh, those people don't have enough food to put on the table. We're not calling anybody when I come out of here. We're just going to hope this wow. doesn't happen again. And he didn't have any insurance or anything. Sure, sure. So when he got robbed, he got robbed. Sure. You know? Came right out of pocket. So there was some comment made after some drinking about, you know, well, if you're going to hide in the refrigerator all the time, you know, you're going to get robbed again and again, you know. And it really cut to the core. It really, really hurt him. So he, you know, he got pretty upset about it. And, uh, you know, then it came into the view that – this was a young fellow that uh, that worked for him at one time, and and uh, he, you know, was really brokenhearted about that that he would participate in the robbery because he would have given him the money. Sure, if he asked him for it, he would have just said, "Here, you know, do what do you need?" Wow. But uh, so that's what happened, and and but the, as you pointed out, in the same instance of the offense, there was the apologies and things, and they came back together and. And nobody ever held it against each other. It was a really close-knit family, you know. Yeah. And I think the closer you are sometimes, uh, the more uh, the more you have these little uh, eruptions and everything. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I do in my family today, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, I said to my buddy one time, you know, well, I you know, I'm not, I haven't been talking to so-and-so or so-and-so for a long time, and I feel really badly about it. And he said, all right, so you let me see, you've, you have 11, there's 11 of you, so that means you have 10 brothers and sisters, so that means you're only not talking to 20% of your family, but you're talking to 80%, that's pretty good. <laughs> when I get an argument, I'm not talking to the rest of my family. That's looking at a cup half full. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So what about 
What about you guys? Well, I grew up um, in the suburbs, in Nanuet mostly, but I came from Mount Vernon over in Westchester. Mm -hmm. And we were, my parents' generation and before, were all in the same few uh, blocks of the Bronx. Yeah. And so my dad was in uh, West Farms. My mom was in Bronx Park South, which is not right on top of each other, but it's certainly in modern parlance. They're the same neighborhood. And uh, as the uh, exodus from the Bronx happened in the 50s, I guess, uh, and 60s, they came up to Mount Vernon and then finally to uh, Rockland. Mm-hmm. So when I went to school and came back as an adult, a married adult, I went back to Mount Vernon to rent an apartment. And it was the building right next door to my grandparents. So for the first time, really, in my whole life, I was living right next to another generation of my family. And soon after that, my brother moved into a third building in that same complex. So we kind of had recreated that neighborhood kind of feel that had been, you know, I'd only heard about in stories. And what was so great about that is I would go to work. I was, I work uh, in Rockland and my wife would go to the local diner where my grandmother always had breakfast and they got to know each other over cups of coffee. Mm -hmm. And then when my son came along, she would, when my wife definitely needed help taking care of, uh, young Brian, she would take the whole kit and caboodle to the diner and they would just all have a good time. And uh, it was a real uh, sense of community. Yeah, those, those were the meeting places, right? Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Do we do that that much anymore with all this fast food crap that's out yeah. there? <laughs> I don't know. Joe, what do you think? What's, what's happened to the social fabric? Has something replaced it or is it just dissolved? Well, I have to say, for my family, we still do get together. It's been a tradition, well, my whole life, 65 years. You know, the holidays was by my great-grandmother at the time. And then, you know, it got to my grandparents. We were always at my grandparents' house. And when generations went back, and I knew my great-grandparents. My kids knew their great-great-grandmother. We still get together as much as we can on a Sunday at my mother's house. My, my father passed away a few years ago, but we really, that's, just don't even ask. You know, we, we're going to be there at some time on a Sunday usually two or three o'clock. Sometimes there's everybody there, sometimes there's not. And when everybody, I mean, there's 17 of us when we're all together. That's my immediate family, my siblings mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their kids and spouses and things yeah. like that. Um, so for me, I have to say it's it's still there on a little smaller scale, even though my immediate family is huge. Uh, we're still there and it's important. You know, I have grandkids that we're, we, I know we're just doing this and they're going to follow it and it'll all happen. That's great. That's that's uh, that's that's Joe Groslin talking to us. How, how, Joe Serino, how, how do you pronounce Joe's Joe name? Rosaline. Rosaline, that's how Ros- you pronounce it. He was just yeah, saying. Rosaline. So do you have nice proper Italian gatherings where you have, you know, the cannolis and the, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. eggplant oh, yeah. parmesan and Oh yeah, yeah. My yeah. nephew, my nephew Mark, who's a basketball player now for for Pace, he's six foot eight. Wow. Uh, he's got he's taken on the flair of cooking. I cook. My father always cooking. You know, I grew up in a house of people who cooked. I cook for a living too now, and um, it's just I just learned by watching. And he did the same thing. He'll always he'll make a pot of sauce. He wants to make pasta. We're making raviolis, all kinds of things. And he's yeah. really good. And he's well, just, he's you you himself. you don't just cook for a living. You're a musician, and we oh, should yeah. we'll go out of this episode oh, uh, yeah. listening to some of Joe's 
uh, music, his dulcimer music. But Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your music? Yeah, um, I do play the dulcimer. I play the mountain dulcimer. I'm in uh, actually a, an orchestra called the New York Dulcimer Orchestra. Where wow. Bass dulcimer, and there's about 22 of us in it. And we meet monthly at the Washingtonville, in Washingtonville, at the, the, the library in Washingtonville. Uh-huh. Um, and that's strictly dulcimer. And I'm also, as I mentioned before, in a band called Linda and the Love Tones, if I could shamelessly plug it. There's our CD. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Linda and the Love Tones. I yes. Love Linda, and, Linda and the Love Tones. You can buy it on Bandcamp. You can stream it on all the major you know, streaming things, too. And here I play the electric bass, and I play a little bit of dulcimer in there. But it's mm-hmm. a completely different band and it's a completely different music. It's all written by Linda. It's kind of pop and rock stuff. You can find it on YouTube and hear it. Uh, but my own solo stuff is mostly dulcimer. That's you know traditional from the Appalachian Mountains, and it's I love it. I love how it. how does somebody come to to play the dulcimer? Where how do how were you introduced to it? It's a funny story. Uh, Mike Wilson, as uh, Chuck knows, many many years ago, probably going back about twelve years ago. Now, his mother in law was cleaning out her house when she was downsizing in Tennessee. Had a bunch of instruments, gave him a few dulcimers, and um, Mike stuck it on my lap and said, "Show me how to play it." I said, "I don't know how to." So we figured out how to tune it up. Once I tuned it up. Things just flowed, and now I have fifteen of them. But that's how that's hmm. how it came to me. Actually, probably about forty plus years ago, I bought a kit at a crafts fair, WBI crafts fair, Ferris Booth Hall in Columbia University, and partially put it together and let it sit for thirty years until Mike gave me this thing, wow. and I finished the one that I built and realized it was pretty crappy. So I have, I have more, and now I have 15, and it's a disease, you know. Wow. <laughs> How do you yeah. like that, huh? When, when family gets together, like you were saying, like holidays and such, uh, is there a music time? Do you settle into some music? There's not. I wish there was, but there's not. When I was a kid, my father would play the dreaded accordion like every Italian does. That was my first instrument, too. I wanted a guitar, <laughs> so I got an accordion. And, he'd, you know, he'd break out his accordion for at the holiday, play the same couple songs, and put it away. But, no, it doesn't really happen anymore i really wish it would i play my instruments for my grandkids and hope that they you know i plant the seeds and they pick it up well you you need to just sit in the middle of the crew with your dulcimer and ignore what they're saying and play yeah and they, they ignore what i'm doing and just talk louder oh, <laughs> we're, we're italian we're italians we don't talk we shout yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right absolutely we we uh we did we we always sang yes uh, always. yes your family uh, my, yes my mom had a beautiful voice and my dad had a he was kind of trained by frank sinatra that was uh, his okay. his time and so he uh he would you know sing uh, as a balladeer and uh and we all came to sing and and play the piano or what that's what i do and and uh, uh kathy's a, an incredible flautist and still a, a music mm-hmm. teacher now for what i wow. guess about 35 years yeah yeah about that i know that uh, uh you know, also Scotty is is a music teacher and everything. So music is very central to our lives, and and yeah, through this time absolutely. of pandemic and everything else, music is kind of you know I think it saved some mm-hmm. of us. It really mm-hmm. has. It really has kept when us going. When people were complaining, they, when people were complaining, they were bored at home during the pandemic because there's nothing to do. It's like yeah, instruments, sure, instruments. It's like oh, sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Your house with your instruments. What's what's better than that? Yeah, and so we get the benefit of the beautiful dulcimer now at the beginning of these <laughs> three episodes and at the end of these episodes. Uh, uh, Scotty's uh, usually our, our uh, bumper music and uh, throughout, but uh, 
We figured for these three, these well, three. Well, yeah. Oh, it's we, a great addition. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's the seasonal thing. It's uh, Joe always played at the Salt Box. He was a great mm-hmm. friend of the Salt Box, and it helped establish a real ambiance for the, the telling of the stories. And we always had a meal at the Solstice Celebration at the Salt mm-hmm. Box, so it was it was yeah. very good. Yeah, great experience. Great experience doing that. It was so nice there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let me see. I think we've wrapped up another. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, we still have not answered the question, is there a Santa Claus? The question. And this is... This Do we is, want to open that can of worms? I don't know. I don't we're, know. we're going there next week. Okay. We're going there next week. I can't wait because... Uh, we have I, to know. We have to know. We have to know. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see okay. you next week. See you next week. See you then. But before we go, and for a second time, we get to listen to some of the beautiful music from a man and his dulcimer, Mr. Joe Rosaline. What have you got for us this week? This is a song that, one of the very first songs that Mike and I learned, kind of playing the same eight or ten songs that we've been playing for the last 12 years, but Uh but this is one of them. It's it's like when you first learn a dulcimer, this is what they teach you. It's called uh, Biolum Cabbage Down. There's many ways to do it, but I play it differently every time, so here we go. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. 
It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their $20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652, MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.